Let's have a word of prayer together before we get started here this morning. So I invite you to, to bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for uh, the Holy Sabbath day that you've created, that, that you chose a day, created a day uh, to be with your people and to bless them. And we thank you so much for that. We thank you for this day that we, we can come apart from our labors and uh, gain us not only a physical rest, but a spiritual rest. We thank you for that. We humbly ask that you will give us of the Holy Spirit this morning. We study into your word concerning uh, the prophecies and the preparation that you have for us uh, before Jesus returns. We pray that the Holy Spirit will give us discernment and wisdom and soften our hearts to the truth, that uh, we may accept the truth and share that truth with those around us. We thank you for Jesus especially, who left all in heaven to come here and uh, not only show us how to live righteously, uh, but to die a death that we deserve so that we can live the life that actually He deserves. And uh, we claim that promise. And uh, we pray that You'll forgive us our sins as we claim His blood. And Lord, be with us as we study now. Be with those, especially those who couldn't be with us this morning and those who are on uh, beds of ill health and uh, those who are struggling you know, emotionally and, and mentally. We pray you be very near to them. And Lord, give me the words to speak this morning. We thank you so much for hearing this prayer. We ask it in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, this is part two uh, of, uh, of the study we started last week that I entitled The False Rapture. Last week we, we looked at the origin of the secret rapture theory and why. We looked at the history of it, why it came to be. Uh, and, and we learned that there are three major systems used to understand Bible prophecy today. And only one, we discovered, is derived from the Bible's own internal system using God's principles of study. Uh, the three major systems by which prophecy is interpreted are, do you remember them? The historicist interpretation, which is what everybody used up until, you know, the, the mid, Middle Ages when you had the Reformation. And then there came about a couple other interpretive uh, systems, right? The futurist interpretation, that places the fulfillment of almost all prophecy out in the future. And the interesting thing is it's always in the future. You never get closer to it, do you? No matter what's going on around, well, that's somewhere in the future. This is where most people, you know, the, the ministers will say, well, you can't understand the book of Revelation. Because, you know, why concern yourself with that? Because all that's in the future somewhere. See? And then there was the other, uh, the other interpretation. It was called the preterist view. And it places all, almost all fulfillment of prophecy somewhere in the past. And there's different theories about that. And as we got into our Bible study last week in the afternoon, we looked at the 70-week prophecy there in Daniel 9, and we went through the timelines, and we saw that the futurist interpretation doesn't fit. We saw that the preterist interpretation doesn't fit. The only thing that fits is when you use the historicist method, and then everything lined up. And so... 
you know, and, and, and I'm not alone in this. This has been common knowledge for hundreds of years. Uh, it's universally agreed that the historicist understanding was the one that was held, I mean, if you look back in history, is held by the reformers there in the 16th century. John Knox, Martin Luther, um, I even mentioned, you know, Isaac Newton. People are stunned to hear Isaac Newton. He was like a scientist. No, he was a biblical scholar as well. And he understood this method of interpretation. John Wesley, of course. They all use this method of interpretation. And, and you know, if you use that principle, biblical principle of common sense, you've got to step back and go, why? Why did they use that, that method? Because that's what the Bible teaches. That's the correct method to use. And so, the other two... Uh, methods, futurism and preterism, were a response uh, by the Roman Catholic Church, weren't they? We learned. To accurate, uh, the accurate portrayal of prophecy, the reason they did that was because the accurate portrayal is that they were the little horn power of Daniel. They were the seven, uh, um, in Daniel chapter 7, they were the first beast power of Revelation 13. So they had to point something away because they were being damaged by what the Bible was saying. So, you know, many Catholics refer to this response to Protestantism as the Counter-Reformation. Have you ever noticed that? They don't say it's the Dark Ages, you know, because to say it was the Dark Ages is to, to admit that uh, the church took all the Bibles away. <laughs> and they you know, they, they're not going to come right out and admit things like that. So they call it the Counter-Reformation. And there's no arguing, arguing I, I, I guess, that it was effective because it did bring a lot of Protestants back into the Catholic faith. And in fact, it's really doing a number today, bringing Protestants. Do you find very many Protestants today? True Protestants. They're hard to come by. They're hard to see. There's not much protesting going on, is there? And when I say protesting, you're not just railing against the church. You're standing up for the truth. You're protesting error. But you don't see that much today. We live in a culture where truth is, is what you consider truth to be. See? So if everybody can make up their own truth, well, there's no standard then, is there? And we see the result in this country. The culture we have today, we see the results of that kind of mentality. There's war in the streets. Everybody, you know, they. It was very interesting. Deb and I, the other day, we were in. Uh, we stopped in a Dollar General, and we stopped in there to. I don't remember what it was we were getting, and uh, we come up to the checkout, and there was a lady there trying to get a refund, and. The manager was being very polite and saying, this is what you need, whatever. And she needed the lady's address, and the lady refused to give her her address. Now, that's kind of strange, we thought. And, and so, eventually, the manager broke down and went ahead and gave, you know, the lady gave her an address. And the, the manager gave her her money back. I don't know how much it was. And then the lady said, admitted that she lied to her. Gave her an address and didn't just made one up, and then called her every name in the book, and went out. The, and the manager said, "Don't bother coming back here to shop." <laughs> Basically, that's what she told her, and called her, you know, a, a white trash blood, you know, 
and, and this particular person was of color. And everybody else standing in line was just amazed by this. And this is the culture today. You know, it's an entitlement culture. It's, it's everyone has their own truth, you know. And uh, woe is me, you know. It's a selfish culture, isn't it? It's all about self. And so <clears throat> we discovered last week that a, that a hybrid belief from the futuristic interpretation method is that Christ is, Christ is going to return in secret to rapture away his people. And according to this view, the coming of Jesus will be in actually two separate events. Um, first he'll come secretly to take the church to heaven and then seven years later he's going to come in an open demonstration of his power and glory. And in between those two events, what's going to happen? This is what they'll tell you. The Antichrist is supposed to come into power and the great tribulation period takes place. That's seven weeks and they make, mix it up, you know, with three and a half years or, or seven years. There's different theories, either one. And the question is really for us is, does this have any merit in the Holy Scriptures? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. I mean, the truth is that the Bible is silent concerning uh, a second stage of Christ's coming that occurs, you know, seven years after or three and a half years after or whatever timeline after the rapture. And by the way, that word rapture uh, is also an invention of these theologians. Uh, it can't be found in the Bible in even a single instance. You can't refer to it anywhere. It's a word that's coined for the second advent of Jesus, which is very interesting because uh, the devil likes to do that. He'll, he likes to make up certain words and, and, and introduce it into the culture and then they start taking that word over, see? And that leads them away from the scripture as well, doesn't it? And so now let's see what the Bible does say about this. Uh, the Bible says Christ's coming, the resurrection, and the catching up of the saints to meet Jesus in the air all take place at the same time, at the end of the world. And this is why Jesus said in Matthew 28, he said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now, why would Jesus promise to be with the church until the end of the world if he intended to come seven years before the end of the world to take them out of the world? The promise would have no meaning then, would it? And what is this really? This, is, this would confuse people, wouldn't it? Now, who's the author of confusion? It's not God. And so we know it's the enemy of souls, don't we? He's the author of it. Uh, the secret rapture doctrine also contradicts the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 13 when he said that the wheat and tares would, would grow together until the end of the world. And then they're going to be separated. Isn't that what the word of God says? According to the two-stage teaching of his coming by the, the rapturists, uh, both groups would not grow together until the end of the world. The righteous would be separated from the wicked seven years before the end. Well, what about the promise of the resurrection then? Well, Christ said in John 6 and verse 40 concerning the righteous, he said, and I will raise him up at the last day. And that's what he said. 
So no one denies that this means the last day of the world, right? Yet Paul declares that the saints are caught up to meet the Lord at the same time the dead in Christ are raised. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17, and we're familiar with this, he says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now please keep in mind that Jesus called this resurrection the last day. But how could it be the last day if this gathering of the saints takes place seven years before the end of the world? You see the contradictions? And how could the last trump sound if it really wasn't the very last trump? Or the very last moment of time is what it's talking about. Can you imagine the graves opening up and the, and the righteous rising and no one knowing that it had occurred? <laughs> you know, it, we, we learned that the devil's very subtle and he, he introduces these things. And one of the things he did in the secret rapture theory, in fact, these back there with Ribera and, and, and those two Jesuits, they, at the, about the same time, you, if you recall, they took uh, the, the writings of the church fathers and they brought them up to be on par with the Holy Scriptures. You remember that? And so this is what they'll say. You bring these, these Scriptures up to the front and they say, well, yeah, but the church fathers say this. You know. It's very interesting. Um, the legal things that are going on today, the attack on Christianity... Would you agree that there's an attack on Christianity? Yeah. It's getting pretty hot, isn't it? Have you heard about the lady Kim Davis? You know, the, the, the problem with that issue there was Kentucky law said that her name had to be on the licenses. She wasn't necessarily had anything against the, the homosexuals that came to get a license, except that her belief said that if my name is on that, that means that I endorse it and God doesn't endorse that. So I'm not going to issue any licenses. Well, you know, if you do your any research, that couple that showed up there weren't from Kentucky. They were from Ohio. And they showed up with the media and cameras, which kind of tells their agenda. And what was the extreme reaction of the judge? He doesn't fine her. And you know the reason why he didn't fine her? Because he said, she'll be able to raise money and make bail. Now, is that a fair judge? No. no. By law, what she had done, she could be fined for it and, and, and move, removed from office or, you know, or, or whatever. In fact, they should have made an accommodation for her. You know, her boss could have said, look, let me sign them and then you're okay until we Kentucky changes the law and whatever. But no, they wanted to make a point, didn't they? There's an attack on Christianity. And so we, we are starting to, to see that we're going to have to stand up for our beliefs. So what are we going to stand on? Are we going to stand on the Word of God, or are we going to stand on the church fathers? Because the church fathers will give us an excuse. You go through time and you'll find that. There's an excuse for every sin. 
And so, what are we going to do? We're going to go by the Bible. I'm going to go by the Bible because I trust God. Can you really trust human beings? <laughs> I would say, let's not put our trust in human beings. And that's what the Bible says too in Jeremiah 17. Because what is our heart like? It's wicked. We, we naturally tend to go towards the selfish thing, don't we? But with God, God's selfless. And so that's something we can trust. So if we're going to stand on the Bible, let's consider these additional scriptures when we talk about Christ's second coming. Revelation 6, verses 16 to 17. And when the wicked see Christ come, they cry out for what? The rocks and the mountains, don't they? They say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come. Who shall be able to stand? That's a good question for the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew 24, verse 27. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west. That's pretty bright. We, we get thunderstorms here, don't we? In Indiana, we know what that's all about. Does that grab your attention? Does a thunderstorm roll through and, and it's a secret and nobody sees it? No, we see it, don't we? And that's what Jesus' point here is. It says, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. You're going to notice it. It's not going to be a secret. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 52. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised. A trumpet. You realize that putting electronics aside, the trumpet is the loudest instrument there is. That's why they say the trumpet shall sound. It's going to be the loudest noise. It's going to wake the dead. You've heard that expression. Oh, they're going to wake the dead with that noise. Psalm 15, verse 3. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. Well, if you're trying to keep something secret, you're going to be sneaky, aren't you? <laughs> but here, God's going to come, the psalmist says, and he's not going to be silent about it. Revelation 1, verse 7. This one's very familiar. Every eye shall see him. It's hard to get around that one, isn't it? But yet if you go to the church fathers and depend on them, you can sneak around these things. Matthew 24 and verse 30. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. With what? He's going to come in the clouds with what? Power and great glory, we read in Revelation 1-7, every eye is going to see him. starting to make sense, isn't it? There's no secret about it. And then all the tribes of the earth are going to mourn, it says there in Matthew 24. That, that's a way of expressing that, you know, all the unrighteous, everybody, there's going to be mourning, isn't there? And if you go to the very next verse, he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now this is clearly the time when Christ comes to gather his saints, isn't it? To say that the second coming of Christ to gather his saints will be secret, I mean in view of just, just the little few texts that we just looked at, um, is to deny the Bible is the word of God, I believe. To say that there's going to be a secret, 
you have to remove these inspired texts from Scripture. But in an attempt to uphold the theory, the rapturists, they go to Matthew 24, verses 40 to 41. But the problem is they pull it out of context. And let's look at this. This is the entire passage. Matthew 24, we begin with verse 37. Here Jesus, he's speaking, he says, But as the days of Noah were, right, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So what's he doing? He's setting up Noah's day as an example, isn't he? So what can we learn from Noah's day? That's the, that's the question, isn't it? For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Basically, life was going on, wasn't it? Until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So they were doing, living life, just living life, didn't know probation had closed. Noah entered the ark. God shut the door himself. That was a close of probation on, on the rest of humanity. They didn't even know it. They thought he was a kook. Right? They didn't know until what, Jesus says? Until the flood came and took them all away. Well, that's a little late, isn't it? Yeah. And then he says, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Then shall too, and this is, these are the verses here that they twist out of context. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. Right? You've heard this before? Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Well, that's the secret rapture, Pastor Joel. It is? Jesus is clearly drawing a parallel between the second coming and the days of Noah. That's the example. Those who entered the ark in Noah's day were saved, Right? And those who refused to enter the ark, were, they, they were left outside. What were they left for? For another chance? No. Obviously, they were left to be destroyed by the flood. And the same will happen when Jesus comes at the end of the world. This is why Jesus is using it as an example. One will be taken to heaven with Jesus, and the other will be left for destruction. That's what he's saying. That's the context. Verse 51 makes clear what will happen to those who are left. And shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You, you imagine when they saw that rain coming in, I would say that there's probably a panic going on, wouldn't you? Have you ever made a mistake in your life? You, you had a decision to make and it turns out you made the wrong decision. And it was something that, that really hurt. And you kind of go, man, I wish I would have just done this. I think we've all had that experience. You have a gnashing of teeth. Oh, I should have done that. That's what I should have done. There was a lot of that going on, Jesus said, outside the ark. Oh, I should have listened to Noah. I should have got in there. You can read Luke 17 for his parallel uh, the same words of Jesus. There's two witnesses for you. In Luke 17, 36, this statement is made. Two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. Now, if you notice verse 37, the question uh, that the disciples asked, they said, and, and they said unto him, where, Lord? They asked that question, where? 
You see, they wanted to know where those who didn't go to heaven were going to be left. Where? Where are they going to be left at? Now notice Jesus' clear answer. He said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. Now that's an interesting response, isn't it? What Jesus is saying is that the bodies of the wicked are going to be left on the ground for the eagles to consume. That's what he's saying. And scripture is too plain to be misunderstood by that, really. Bodies are just going to be left there to rot, decay. That's where the birds are going to gather. And that was his answer to them. And only as we accept all that the Bible says can we be safe from these, uh, these errors, these deceptive teachings that are actually, they're really confusing millions of Christians today um, concerning the second coming of Christ, of all things. Now, rapturists also, they like to hang on to the texts that liken the Lord's coming to a thief in the night, if you're familiar with that. They assume that this must be a quiet, secret coming because the thief, I mean, he doesn't, he's not a one-man band pounding the drums and blowing the horns as he's breaking into your house, right? So um, it's got to be a secret, right? But does it really mean that? Let's look at it very clearly here. We'll find that it doesn't. Here's one of those texts. It's found in 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. But the day the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. What? And the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Obviously, I would say, the thief part has nothing to do with secrecy because the heavens are going to pass away with a great noise. And if coming as a thief is the secret rapture, which takes place, remember, seven years before the end of the world, how can the heavens and earth pass away? I mean, as Peter describes it, the heavens and the earth couldn't pass away and be burned up seven years before the world ends. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, does it? The fact is that Jesus himself explained clearly just how a thief's coming could be related to his second advent. It's also in Matthew 24. If you look at verses 42 to 43... Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Well, yeah, if you know the thief's coming, you're prepared for him, aren't you? The thief would come unexpectedly, you see, when the owners were not looking for the thief. And in the same way, Christ's coming would take people by surprise. Remember, he said, as in the days of Noah, what were they doing? They were marrying, they are just living life. They weren't watching and praying and looking, right? That's what he means by that, a thief in the night. Some teach that the two separate stages of, of Christ's coming are shown in the Greek language. And uh, Jerome and I have had conversations about this, how people oftentimes, you know, they'll get into the original languages, which is good when you study, but then they, they'll twist those as well. 
And so there, there is a misunderstanding here. They'll say in the Greek. They say that there's first the rapture, parousia, that's the Greek word, or parousia, a secret coming, that's what they say. And then seven years later, there will be the apocalypsis, right? Revelation, his coming in power and great glory. But actually, instead of teaching two separate events, the Greek terms are interchangeable. They essentially mean the same thing. <laughs> you know, They don't even give any kind of indi- indication as to a seven-year time period between them. But that's what they tried to do. And people who um, are innocent, or, and I mean this in, a good, in, in the good sense, ignorant, not stupid, just ignorant of Greek or ignorant of Hebrew or whatever, they'll fall for these things, see? Oh, well, the Greek word for that is Persia, and the Greek word for that is apocalypsis. They mean two different things because they're two different words. Well, don't we in the English have several different words that mean the same thing? Right? Paul uses the word, for example, parousia in 1 Thessalonians 4, and speaking of the coming of our Lord and, and our gathering together unto Him. He then goes right on to show that this parousia will destroy um, the man of sin. In speaking of the Antichrist, Paul says whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. And in the Greek, His coming is parousia. He is there. 2 Thessalonians 2.8. Right? These texts clearly describe the coming parousia of Christ as taking place when? After the reign of the man of sin. That's what he was saying. Not as an escape rapture before the reign of the Antichrist. Okay? The other Greek word, apocalypsis, which is translated as revelation, is used in a way that indicates it's not a, a second coming, you know, from the time the believers are gathered up. First Peter 1 and verse 13, Peter said, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you all at the revelation, and the Greek word is apocalypsis, of Jesus Christ. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why would Christians be exhorted to keep hoping to the very end of the world for the grace brought through the revelation of Christ if their real hope was a secret rapture seven years before the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, it makes no sense. Here are some verses which prove beyond a doubt that the two words, parousia, apocalypsis, refer to the same event. In Matthew 24, 24 and verse 37 we read, but as, as we read that, as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming, parousia, of the Son of Man be. Now you go to Luke, he says, as it was in the days of Noah, even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed, apocalypses. Are they talking about the same event? They are. It's the same event. So that shows that the coming, parousia of Christ, and the revelation, apocalypsis of Christ, are the same event. The words are used interchangeably. So there's no, and, and there's no basis really for this seven years between, you know, the two. Some also teach that the rapture is not really the coming of Jesus at all. They say his coming is when Christ returns in power seven years after the rapture. But 
Good grief. That's confusing. <laughs> That's a confusing explanation. The fact is that there are many scriptures that admonish Christians to wait and watch for the coming of the Lord. For example, James 5 verse 7 says, Be patient therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. And if we just use common sense and we think about this, I mean, why should Christians need to be patient under the coming of the Lord if there's a secret rapture to take them to heaven seven years before His coming? You know, strange as it may seem, this whole counterfeit secret rapture is built upon a just a constant uh, repetitions of words and ideas that are not found in the Bible at all. But they've been repeated so often that millions have assumed that they must be uh, biblical. Have you ever heard of the, the man named Joseph Goebbels? Does that ring a bell with you? Joseph Goebbels? Exactly. He was Hitler's propaganda minister in Nazi Germany. Don't you find it interesting? It's, it'd be like the President of the United States having a cabinet member that was just in charge of propaganda, which I don't doubt that he does. Okay, But this is who Joseph Goebbels was. And he made a lot of statements that are quoted by many today. And here's one that we should all remember. Joseph Goebbels said, If you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. That's from a Nazi who was a propaganda minister. And that's just a that's really, it's a true statement. And this is what Satan and his ministers of unrighteousness have been doing for thousands of years. They've been telling big lies repeatedly until people believe them to be true. But that's not what the Bible says, see? Let's look at some of the texts that have been used to support the doctrine of this two-phase coming of Christ. And please notice that that none of the verses actually say what some try to make them say. In fact, it is only after a person has already assumed that Christ will return in two separate comings that these verses could even suggest the idea, you see. But we're to take the Bible just as it reads, aren't we? Are we wanting to learn what the Bible has to say or are we wanting to prove something we think is the truth? See? And that's the difference, isn't it? Well, I believe this, so I'm going to go to the Bible and I'm going to find some texts that prove what I believe. But we're to read the Bible as if we're reading somebody's life history, which is what the Bible's about. It's about the history of the life of Jesus Christ. So we want to know what the Bible tells us about Jesus, not go to it and use it as proof texts to to show that we're right about our preconceived ideas. Revelation 3 and verse 10 is often quoted to try to prove that the righteous will be taken out of the world before the tribulation. It says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now it says there, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. You see what I'm saying? They'll grab that, and they do. They grab it. And they'll try to say, well, he's going to remove you then. 
But that's not what it's talking about, is it? It's not talking about the righteous leaving the world at all, is it? Jesus completely clarified the meaning by something he said in John 17. In John 17, verse 6, he said, They have kept thy word. Verse 15, he says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. So don't miss the significance of the term kept the word, right? He's talking about people who keep the word of God, his people. Both statements are talking about the same group of people, those who are faithful. Now, if those who kept the word can be kept from the evil of the world without taking them out of the world, why should we suppose that a special coming and secret rapture is required for those who kept the word to be kept from the hour of temptation? See, it doesn't line up. So whatever else may be taught in in Revelation 3.10, it's evident that no extra coming of Christ uh, is taught there or indicated there. We previously learned that the true biblical doctrine must be based upon clear statements of what the entire Bible teaches on a subject. Right? Line upon line, precept upon precept. You line everything up that it has to say about that particular topic. And so we don't pick verses which offer just veiled references. We go by what the Bible actually says. Let's not pull something out of it. Take it as it reads. Amen? Amen. Luke 21, verse 36 is an example of that very thing. Jesus said to his disciples, Pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass. How to escape all these things? By secret rapture? Take them to heaven seven years before the end of the world? No. For in the prayer of Jesus we just read, he says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. And when he told them, pray to escape, he must have meant the same as when he prayed, I pray not take them out of the world, but keep them. So how are you going to escape it? With God at your side. He's not going to be removing you from it. Isn't it true that God uses certain situations to polish us to be better people, to be more like Him? He doesn't say, oh, this is too hard for you. I'm just going to remove you. That doesn't happen, does it? Well, I can't say it never happens. Sometimes He says, I don't want you to be there. But He doesn't take you out of the world. He puts you in a different circumstance. (laughs) And so... This particular instance rules out a secret rapture entirely. The text that's used to prove the rapture actually forbids the saints being taken out of the world during the time of trouble. (laughs) So it actually just destroys their theory. But since so much of the rapture's theory revolves around the seven-year period, one would assume that the Bible has to speak frequently of that time period. But there's not a single scriptural reference that ties the seven years to the end of the world or the coming of Christ, not one. So we learned last week in our, our Bible study, is Jesus of Christ the Naz- uh, Jesus of Nazareth the Christ, I'll get it right. We looked at that uh, 70 week prophecy. What they're trying to do is remove the last week and throw it clear into the future and say it's a secret. But we learned Nowhere in that prophecy in Daniel or anywhere we look 
Is there justification to cut that off and remove it? It actually would destroy the entire prophecy. And as we learned, it destroys that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. See, every time we say his name, glory. <laughs> Praise the Lord. You forget that all the time, don't you? I did say, I don't know what's going on. Hello? <laughs> this happened to us at the beginning of last week. Some try to justify the seven years by, like I was just mentioning, um, lifting the prophecy of Daniel 9 completely out of context. Daniel 9 not only gives the timing of the Messiah, but it also tells of the probation of the nation of Israel, which Bill, we were talking about earlier this morning. Um, God said to Daniel in verse 24, 9, 24, he said, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. To finish the transgression, he says, and to make an end of sins. I want you to notice that God was going to allow Daniel's people 70 weeks to see what they would do with the Messiah when he appeared. Okay, Now how could he do that if they cut it off and move it somewhere clear out into the future? Yeah, they're not even a Christian prophecy for the Jews at that time. Exactly. 490 years. That's right, exactly. And so we, we studied this out. The 70 weeks are prophetic time, right? And we looked at that word Shabuah. It's week of weeks. It's a week of seven days oh, yeah. is what he means. But Daniel's using it as a week of years. So you don't even need the day for your prophecy there, which is very interesting. It's one of the few places that that's the case in apocalyptic prophecies. And, and so when you look at it with the actual meaning of the Hebrew, Daniel's saying 490 years. He's coming right out and saying it. That's what he means by the word Shabuah, for the word weeks. And so we looked at that. It's a period of seven years that he's talking about there. 70 weeks, 490 literal years. And, and so the 70 weeks would... would give the Jews, this is what God is saying, a probationary period, right? After which, depending on their decision, they're either going to remain God's people, which we would be in a completely different world today, that would have been the case, but they didn't, did they? They didn't accept Jesus as the Christ. That means that they're no longer God's chosen people. There's no theocracy, nation, on this planet that is God's people. They rejected it, see? But don't miss the point in Daniel 9.25 that the prophecy of the 70 weeks was to begin with the decree to what? Restore and build Jerusalem. And that well-known date is 457 B.C. That's when Artaxerxes sent out the decree. You read that in Ezra 7. Um, you can start in 6, actually, and go through and read 7 as well. And from that date, the Jews would have 490 years to finish filling up their cup of iniquity by rejecting the Messiah. That's what he was talking about. And so we learned last week that the 490-year probation ended in 34 AD. That's when the Jews ceased. They, they, they showed their rejection through Christ's representatives, his disciples, by stoning Stephen, killed him. 
And then you see, and you can read Josephus and a lot of historicists, that persecution really heated up against the Christians at that time. Because Jesus told his disciples to start where? In Jerusalem. And they hung around for virtually three and a half years, but then Stephen was stoned, persecution hit, and they spread the gospel all around the world. It's not, you know, something that was hidden. <laughs> we can see that in history. Um, Daniel 9.25 says that the Messiah would be anointed after 69 of those prophetic weeks had passed. And that would be 483 years from the, the decree. And that bring, brought us, as we saw, to 27 AD. That was the very year, what? That Jesus was baptized by John. He was anointed. His ministry began. He lived for 30 years, doesn't mean that he didn't minister to those around him for those 30 years, but that was the starting point. And remember, Jesus said, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Remember the first time he walked into the synagogue, he, he said the time has come, that was the time he was talking about. Daniel 9. <laughs> and let me tell you something, they knew exactly what he was saying. We as Christians, we don't get wrapped up into the prophecies that much. We thought, oh, yeah, the time Jesus started his ministry. Most Christians think it's no big deal. Do you think it was a big deal to the Jews who heard him say that? Absolutely. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, I am the Messiah. <laughs> okay? What was to happen in the 70th week? Daniel 9, 27 says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. The midst of the week would be three and a half years, wouldn't it? Uh, from his baptism. And according to the Bible, the ministry of Jesus lasted three and a half years. The spring of AD 31, he, what happened? He was crucified. Right? What showed that the, the oblations ceased, those sacrifices ceased? What happened in the temple? The time Jesus died. Right. The veil of the temple was rent in two, Matthew 27. That signified the end of the sacrifices. You know? And by his death he caused them to cease because he was they pointed toward him. See, as the Messiah. Another three and a half years would lead up to the end of the 70 weeks and the end of Jewish probation. As a matter of fact, we see the mercy of God because when they crucified Jesus, he could have ended their probation right then. But he gave them another three and a half years to repent, to accept. What a merciful God. You know, three and a half years is a long time. <laughs> you know. But... Uh, during those three and a half years, the disciples, they labored largely for the Jews. And, and then they stoned Stephen. Uh, henceforth, you know, probation closed on, on the Jews as a nation. They can still be saved as individuals. Grafted into the body of Christ, just like anyone else. In exactly, exactly the same way. Um, but as a nation, they've been rejected as the chosen people. And here's the way the Bible describes that Rejection, Matthew 21, verse 43. The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, Jesus said. 
Matthew 21, verse 19. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon but leaves only and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. You remember that? He was going into to Jerusalem. What was the fig tree a symbol of? Israel. Israel, the Jewish nation. Matthew 23, 38. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. This was the last time he was there and he walked out. Ichabod, what's that mean? The glory is departed. God is left. Ichabod. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ, Paul says. If you go to the next verse, then if ye be Christ, then ye are what? Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise, what promise? That was given to Abraham. What did the Jews believe at that time? They, they kept track of their heritage, didn't they? They believed actually your bloodline is what saved you. But as we said today, John said, God can raise up stones <laughs> to be children of Abraham. Right? Romans 10, verse 12, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Romans 9, Verse 6, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the promise are counted for the seed, right? And so the New Testament teaches the acceptance of spiritual Israel and the rejection of physical Israel and the children of the flesh. This is what Paul was putting in contrast here. No longer are you God's favored nation. We are a spiritual nation, a spiritual people. That's why he says these things. Romans 2, 28, for he's not a Jew which is one outwardly. And by the way, this really was always the case. It talks about conversion, but God did have an organized people at one time on the earth, a nation of priests. He goes on, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit and not in the letter. See, Acts 13, 46. It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And so the seven years tribulation theory... Remember, originated with jo, uh, that Jesuit Ribera, comes from lifting that 70th week of Daniel's prophecy completely out of its context and shoves it far into the future. And then it's going to be fulfilled, you know, after Christ comes to snatch away the righteous secretly. It's amazing, isn't it? It's just amazing. And people who, who do not study for themselves and read it for themselves. They're hooked. They listen to the church fathers. You know, the church fathers today are pastors and ministers that stand in the pulpit. <laughs> and I'll tell you, check me out. The pastor had a great influence on me when I was very young in the walk was C.D. Brooks. Russ knows him. He preached out of the word. And he would say, you know, 
check me out. Study your Bible. Check me out if what I'm saying isn't in the Bible and isn't what, what the Bible says. And if you find that uh, I'm teaching something that isn't in the Bible, bring it to me and show me. Because we're all to be teachable. All right? By the devious manipulation of God's Word, uh, the devil has really... Um, He's really deceived a lot of people. Millions of people. And the tragedy of this rapture theory is that it takes these beautiful verses that we find in Daniel chapter 9, you know, 24 to 27, that, that actually predict the coming of Jesus. It predicts his, his baptism and His crucifixion. And they take that and what do they do? They apply it to who? The Antichrist. Isn't that just like Satan? And this is done by stating that it is Antichrist that causes the sacrifice and oblation to cease after three and a half years. That's why you got these theories about the temple being rebuilt and sacrifices coming in and people, I wouldn't put it past Satan to have people do that just to deceive. And you'll find that actually in many of the newer Bible translations. That's why you got to be careful about the Bibles that you buy and the Bible that you use. But Daniel states that it is Jesus who causes the, the sacrificial system of the Jews to cease when he died on the cross. The most glaring inconsistency of the rapture theory is that the Antichrist will not appear until after the saints are caught away seven years before the end of the world. But I think Paul settles the matter um, pretty clearly for us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 1, he says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, what day? The day of our gathering together unto Christ, right? That day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin, that's speaking of the Antichrist, isn't it? That man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. I think Paul actually lays it out so plain that it's difficult to say anything about this rapture, this theory. Christ's coming is not going to take place except there come a falling away first and that Antichrist is going to be revealed first. And you show these words to anyone that's not prejudiced by private interpretations and he'll say, these verses say that the man of sin is going to be revealed before Jesus comes. <laughs> and Paul's not referring to some superman to appear 2,000 years after his epistles. You know, he wrote in verse 7, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. It was coming in while he was alive. The crowning act in the great drama of deception, however, occurs just before the return of Christ. Verse 8, he says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. That's pretty clear. I mean, it says the Antichrist will be destroyed when Christ comes. Very clear. 
He doesn't arrive after Christ to come. He comes back the second time. And Revelation 20 verse 4 assures us that some of those who are raised in the final resurrection will be those who refuse to worship the beast and receive his mark. Isn't that right? I mean, that's very clear too. Let's look at it. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And so I tell you that that alone completely demolishes uh, the futuristic method, you know, prophetic interpretation. First claim that the emergence of the Antichrist and the imposition of his mark are to be looked for after the resurrection, remember? And what's called the secret rapture. Finally, I'll wrap it up here. Let's look at the claim that during the tribulation, uh, those not raptured will be given another chance to be saved. Does the Bible teach that? Really? No. Nowhere does Scripture speak of a second chance after Jesus returns. This is just another man-made doctrine that's pleasing to our carnal heart. But why stop at a second chance? Why not a third? Why not a fourth? Why not a fifth? Why not always? Yeah. The Bible actually teaches the opposite. (laughs) We're in our second chance right now. Notice these texts. 2 Corinthians 6.2 Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Why would Paul say that? Well, you know, you'll get another chance later on. And maybe a third chance later on. Revelation 22. What's it say about probation in Revelation 22? That's right. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that's righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me. So probation, your second chance the only other chance we have closes before Jesus returns. Jeremiah 8 verse 20. The harvest, and he's speaking of the second coming of Christ, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. I hope that's not the case for us. That's why we should heed Paul's remarks about today is the day. When Jesus comes the second time, he carries in his hand a sharp sickle, according to Revelation 14. And so this is the reaping time after centuries of sowing the seeds of sin. And this is the harvest time. And the harvest is the end of the world, that Jesus said in Matthew 13, 39. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped, Revelation 14, 16. So there can be no saving after the reaping. Uh, you know, the reaping at earth's harvest, which is at the coming of Christ. So when Jesus and his only angels appear, according to Matthew 25, then before him shall be gathered all nations. This is what gets me. There's only going to be two classes. 
know, in that company, that great company. The destiny of each has been set by what he did before the coming of Jesus. And before him are gathered who? All nations. Not just the Christians to be raptured secretly away, but all nations. And so, beloved, let's stand firm on the word of God alone, right? Amen? Let's reject these man-made, these man-pleasing ideas that form the bulk of the whole secret rapture theory. Because as we've noticed, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is going to come the second time in glorious majesty. And He's going to do what? He's going to take the redeemed home with Him. And so it's going to be a personal, it's going to be visible, earth-shaking event that everyone alive is going to know about. And the wicked are going to cry for the rocks to you know, cover them up. And the righteous are going to be saying, praise God when He returns. Take them home. Because the righteous are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And the wicked are going to be actually slain by the brightness of His coming. Just as Paul says. And so friends, I encourage you, let's carefully study our Bibles that we will not be deceived by the beast concerning the most important, I, th- I believe, and, and wonderful hope that we have. You know, they actually call, the rapture is called the rapture theory, the blessed hope. They've tagged it the blessed hope. The second coming of Jesus is the blessed hope, isn't it? Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we do indeed thank you that you've given us your holy word to be the test. The test that we, we are to compare every theory to. We take these things that we hear, we need to find that it's in the Word of God, that you've said it, and then we will believe it. We thank you so much for protecting your Word through time and, and, and that it is holy, that we can go to it and know and trust it, that what it says is the truth for our life. We thank you that it reveals uh, what error is so that we can put error away and hold on to the truth. And we know that Jesus is the truth. So it begins with Him. Let us uh, keep our eyes upon that. That Jesus is the truth, the life, and the way. We thank You so much for uh, guiding us through the Holy Spirit into what the truth may be. And Lord, help us. Give us the Holy Spirit to help us take those errors that we have and put them away. Put them far from us. That we may be found faithful when Jesus does return and every eye sees Him. Please continue to be with us throughout this Sabbath day as well. We pray in the blessed name of Jesus who is so worthy. Amen.